Digital Gonzo, episode 102, dated Thursday the 20th of September 2012, The Sound of Gonzo, volume 1. Welcome to Digital Gonzo. I'm Alex Shaw, and this is a new kind of show I'm doing this week. Inspired by Dork Tunes, the excellent video gaming music podcast, and also Neil Taylor's fantastic guest feature, Desert Island Gonzo. My guest and I have each brought along six pieces of music from films that I'm not planning on reviewing for Digital Gonzo. This is an excellent way to explore music from some of the greatest composers of our time, and some that have gone unsung. It could be that these movies are great, they could also be utterly terrible, and the only good thing about them might be the music. You'll find out tonight. Future shows may feature soundtracks instead of scores. They may also involve music from TV and video games. Under the Gonzo Planet banner, we have no restrictions. And I deliberately haven't put our choices in the notes, which makes what's coming up more of a surprise. Instead, listings of our choices, along with YouTube links to every single one of them, can be found in the forums, where you guys can, of course, chat about the music and make requests for future shows. And one last thing. If you hear a song from a film you love and start to feel really sad that I'm not going to give it a full review, make your thoughts known on the forums. Other people might feel the same. Now, I'm not a jukebox, and I don't usually do review requests, but if enough people are up in arms, I might consider it. And my guest tonight is a man I've been planning this simple but hellish addictive format with for well over a year. Presenter of the Game Burst podcast, journalist for MCV magazine, and long-time appreciator of cinematic music, Mr. James Batchelor. I am absurdly excited about doing this show. <laughs> Gonzo listeners may well know I am a massive soundtrack nerd. I have restrained myself, believe it or not, when we've done things like Star Wars, Harry Potter, Back to the Future, um, because I know that I could talk for ages and I could really get in depth and analyse like why I love tracks and like even down to like little collections of notes as to what that what kind of feelings that inspires in me. Mm. There is no one in this uh, on this earth that I've met that I can actually explain that to fully. But to a microphone and you miles away, I am going to unleash everything. <laughs> Good, good, that is what this is about. So it's an exploration. At the same time, though, it's a pretty easy show for us. We just have to start off each piece with A, the film that the piece belongs to, B, the name of the track, C, the composer, and D, why does this have to be heard? Now, obviously, this D part is the, is the important bit. Now, we could just say like a two-word explanation, or we could say a 2,000-word explanation. Somewhere in between would probably be a good idea. I'm going to start us off then, if that's all right. Yeah, go for it. It's a Disney film called uh, Mulan. Uh, hopefully people have seen it. It's 1998. It's, it's one of the last great Disney films um, before things started to kind of decline. The track yeah. I've chosen is called Short Hair, um, although it's also known on the soundtracks, actually. And I didn't know this until I was searching for the show. Mm. It's also known as Mulan's Decision, which completely summarizes up the track. Oh. Um, it was composed, I also didn't know this, by Jerry Goldsmith who is one of the most prolific composers in films ever. Mm. Um, he obviously, you know, he, he does stuff for Star Trek, um, for Air Force One, and for countless other things I forget, but those are my we two favourite tracks. Uh, Alien as well. He's, he's got a very sort of classical Hollywood style. Yeah. He's, he's, one of the, he's one of the sort of composers that you listen to. It's like, most films you can listen to, and it's like, right, I can detect that this is one of three or four people doing that score, and Jerry's one of those ones you can automatically recognise. Although I didn't recognise him in this. 
this is a fantastic track. It's it's during the point where Mulan decides that she is going to take her father's place in the war. For those who haven't seen it, spoiler alert, but it, it, not majorly spoilers. This is the no, premise no, of the film. Yeah, yeah, it's the, the whole. This is, this is the, the yeah, the, the premise of the film. The the Huns have invaded China. China, to defend themselves, have conscripted every able man, one from each family, to fight in the Chinese army. There is only one man in the Far family, which is her, uh, Mulan's father, but he's old, he's weak, he's already fought in wars, and she doesn't want him to go. Mm. She has an argument with her father about that it isn't right, etc. She goes outside, she's crying, she's so upset that she can lose her dad, and she watches him kind of from afar, practicing with his old sword, and he struggles, and he can't quite manage it, and she watches, she's sad, and then she decides she's going to take her place. And there's halfway through, there's a moment where it really kicks off. Mm. And they mix, like, this kind of, this beautiful orchestral score, score that has very kind of oriental leanings, you know, because obviously it's set in China. And it blasts in with synthesizer. Now, I love anything that mixes orca- orchestra with electronics or synth- synthesizer, that kind of fusion of old and new. Yeah. I think it's such a unique and rousing sound. And in this case, in particular, it's absolutely amazing. Are you referring to synthesizer as new now? Uh, yes, newer than orchestra. Figuratively speaking. Figuratively yeah. speaking, orchestra is a very kind of classical sound, um, and, and synthesizer is very kind of contemporary compared to orchestras. Yeah. Well, to me, I could be wrong on this in, in terms of everyone else. Synthesizer is very much rooted in the 80s and early 90s. Mm. After then, they, they started going back to sort of more orchestral stuff. But uh, it's, it's rare that you get something with, with synthesizers. Like one of the other ones you've got coming up uh, has, is you know, heavy on the synth. Yeah. But it's an unusual film that they're actually doing that with. And they also bring in orchestral with that. Yeah, exactly. And, and like I said, I, just, I love that kind of mix. Interestingly, and again, I didn't know this until researching, the synthesized version you're about to hear is only available on the limited edition of the soundtrack. On the original yeah. version of the soundtrack, they only did an orchestral version, which wasn't heard in the film. Yeah, I hate when they do that. I, I do. Really I, do. Absolutely. It's like, what am I paying for here? You know, if I'm buying the soundtrack, I actually want to hear what was in the film, not some reinterpretation. I, I hate it. Like, I, the, there were two Bond soundtracks that shocking. That like, you know, we've gone what five minutes into the show, and I've mentioned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but everybody, when James mentioned, <laughs> take a shot. Absolutely. Um, Bob or John Williams. There were two Bond soundtracks which really um, irritated me with their original soundtrack releases. Uh, Tomorrow Never Dies only yeah. had music from the first hour of the film yeah. um, originally. And that's because actually he, um, he scored it in two parts. And then Living Daylights, the version that I've bought, is going to be an extra seven or eight tracks. And again, it's kind of the first half of the film. But I won't do go on for that anymore and um, the last thing I'd say about the, the Mulan soundtrack like, uh, just interesting facts about the overall soundtrack it was nominated for an Academy Award which I thought was very impressive because I thought I was one of the only people that actually appreciated this and mm. um, it was nomi- nominated for best original musical or comedy score which it lost out to Shakespeare in Love mm-hmm. um, and the, the the kind of every Every Disney song that focuses on a, on a girl, a female protagonist, always has like kind of those one that one song that is about the girl mm. and about the girl's place in the world. And in this case, it was Reflection. Yeah. Um, Christina Aguilera. It was indeed Christina Which Aguilera. Is the, is the launched first, her career. It's the first single she released in the US. I had no idea. Mm. No idea. It's not like anything else she's ever really done. It isn't. It isn't. Um, but I tell you what, like, like I said, like, from the person who bought you dirty, <laughs> it's Reflection. It is. It's terrible, like dirty. But but reflection's quite a nice song. But I, for me, by far and away, the best soundtrack, the best track on this score is "Short Hair." 
Mm. It's absolutely stunning. So this is, uh, just to set the scene, folks, uh, as James was describing, uh, Mulan watches her father steadfastly trying to do sword play on his own, just preparing to be a soldier, and failing and being feeble, and decides, right, I am going to go, I am going to put on his armor, I am getting out of here. She takes his horse, and she disguises herself as a boy, and then rides off, and it's... It's important to note that um, this decision that Mulan's made is punishable by death if she's actually found out, which gives quite a lot of tension to the uh, the, the film going through it. And of course, there's an agenda to it. Mm. And you see that, and it kind of when you watch it back, it really makes this decision powerful. Like knowing that she, she obviously knows the laws of her country, she knows that what she is doing may be risky, may save her father, and may end in her, you know, the death of her own life. E- you know, even if she doesn't get discovered, she may die in battle, but she's that determined to protect her father. 
and there is it's the determination in the in the percussion during that synthesized section that really drives that and I love it okay next one this one's my choice and this one's from a film called Coraline from 2009 it's from the makers of that's it for the director of The Nightmare Before Christmas and while it seems a lot like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and uh, Henry Selleck's other film was uh, James and the Giant Peach it's actually not got to anything to do with Tim Burton uh, it's written by Neil Gaiman which is based on a graphic novel of his, and it's about a young girl who is unhappy with her parents who have, uh, are disappointing and boring, and she wants to you know, have, have more of an interesting life, and she's just moved to a big new house, but it's raining all the time, and she feels uncomfortable. You know, she wishes for better parents, and she goes through a magic door to a mirror version of her own world, and uh, finds a pair of much more vibrant, much more fun, much more child-oriented other parents, which are mirrors of her own. They've got buttons for eyes, which is the first sign that this is kind of creepy. And it develops from there, and I don't know when we're going to review it for uh, Gonzo, but it's an excellent film, and you guys should definitely all check it down. I, I, just, I bought this one on faith. I actually bought the Blu-ray, you know, having not seen the film, which I very, very rarely do. The write-ups were good for it. The score is by a, uh, a man named Brian Coulet, who's French, and I'd never heard of any of his uh, stuff before. And he's got this kind of whimsical... It's, it's very French if you listen to it, the actual the score. Have you, have you seen this film or heard the score? Jim? I haven't, shamefully. It's got kind of... Uh, there's a lot of children's voices in there. It's very choral. And if you listen... This, ne- this first track is actually the end credits. That's the other thing I really hate about soundtracks. When they change the order of the score. Yes, it's, that makes no sense. I can sort of understand them doing that if it's just like a, a soundtrack of different, you know, pop music and stuff. And they just, if we put it in exactly the order of the film, it, you know, it, it might not sound cogent as, a, as a, uh, an album of music. But to do that with a score and to go, right, the bit at the end, we'll put that at the beginning, then we'll mix the middle up and then we'll put some of the beginning just before the end and then we'll put a song from the middle end at the very end. And then we'll maybe have uh, a suite in there as well. I hate that, and I love the fact that in iTunes you can rearrange everything. That's great. But sometimes it's like trying to do a puzzle with your eyes shut, because, <laughs> hang on, this, the name of this track doesn't correspond with anything that I remember is it actually happened in the film. So sometimes you have to do a lot of research. But either way, this is the end credits. It's got kind of nonsense choral chanting in it. And it's very short, and it's very kind of bouncy and fun, but a little bit creepy. And, you know, it's, this is resplendent of the actual film itself. And when you start the Blu-ray up, this is the menu music. And it's a really great way to sort of, you know, get you into the, the experience. I recommend Coraline. It was one of the first uh, major 3D films um, it was uh, not long after uh, Beowulf came out and uh, just before Avatar. And unfortunately, the Blu-ray comes with those red and blue, like, shaded things, which is disgusting because this film, especially when they get, she gets to the other side, is so bright and vibrant and the colours are rich. It's almost, it's an edible film. I, I should be saying more about the, the, the score, but ultimately I just kind of want to pimp this to people and if you listen to the the score itself I don't know too much about it I do know that apparently um, one of the main uh, lead choral girls happened to be named Coraline no way indeed um, and uh, yeah as I said the language that they're actually speaking while the guy may be French is actually nonsense so don't try to make out any specific lyrics in there it's just to give you an idea of, uh, of the creepy goings on in the film. Another thing that is definitely worth mentioning about this film, Keith David plays a deep-voiced 
and um, smug black cat. So, this is the end credits music to Coraline by Bruno Collet. It's not like a, a super scary movie. It's it's not going to uh, you know give you nightmares, but it is unusual and it is kind of a little bit haunting in places. And it's made in CG, but it's made to look like claymation. And the, everything in the film stands out and, and feels very tangible. And you can really get the texture in, in things, and because it has that wonderful claymation quality to it. Mm. And uh, it's got D- Dakota Fanning in the in the main voice. Isn't Terry Hatcher the mum? She is indeed the mum and the other mother, and uh, yeah, it always it always fascinates me in uh, soundtracks like yeah like so like that piece from Coraline and even things like so Jewel of the Fates by John Williams you may now drink, um, <laughs> and you know anything where they have kind of these choral chants um, <laughs> in the behind the music or you know in that, that that was very kind of prominent compared to some of the stuff that I've I've listened to like it fascinates me how they come up with what words to do. Mm. Because I mean, like, it, it makes no sense. The, you know, I know that some of them. So, for example, the um, the Lord of the Rings soundtracks by Howard Shore, the mm. the chanting in the background is always in Elvish or Dwarven. So, um, you know, in things like uh, I think it's Lothlorien, the woman chanting in the background, it's actually a lament for Gandalf, as mm. Legolas says in the film, and he he does actually translate out of I believe it's Sindarin, um, mm-hmm. into a, a, a poem about a fallen warrior during um, the Bridge of Khazad-dûm. Uh, which oh is, no, darling! Like that is actually dwarven language, and mm. it's, it's meant to be dwarven souls. Like Charlie, it always fascinates me how they kind of decide what words to say because mm. they, it makes no sense. And that that honestly, the way they kind of crafted that chanting, it did sound like an, its own language. Yeah, and it's amazing. Okay, next one, Tron Legacy. Indeedy, yes. Uh, the track I've chosen is called The Game Has Changed. Um, but I tell you what, I'll be honest, the only reason I picked this is because it's a, a decent track on a truly superb soundtrack. I, I just wanted to get a 
a track from Tron Legacy in here. Um, the soundtrack is actually it's it's a film score done by Daft Punk. Mm. Um, it's the first film score they've ever done. Um, and they actually they were they were actually di- directly approached. It wasn't the case of they said, "Oh, we're big fans of the film. Can we do this?" Which you know they are big fans. The director actually went to them and said, "Look, can you do this?" Mm. Because they were on tour at the time and they didn't have the time at the yeah. original. Yeah, um, it's it's fantastic. It's kind of it's a great mixture of kind of. Um, it was recorded with an eighty-five piece orchestra and electronics um, and to kind of mix the two and they've mixed the two to kind of represent the two worlds obviously you know the real world from which Flynn and uh, I can't remember Jeff Bridges character now which is terrible but Jeff Bridges and Flynn come from the real world and then obviously the electronica is the world of Tron the grid um, it is an absolutely spectacular soundtrack I, I, it, it's very kind of brooding and epic um, and, and the, the tracks you know kind of build up and there's a lot of kind of tension to them and power, and I, I, I actually got this for free. Shortly around the time that the film came out, they were they were giving it away for free online as a kind of promotion for the film, and I downloaded it because I never turned down a free soundtrack. But I would heartily recommend people watch the money. You uh, sorry, spend money on this. You said towards the start of the episode that we're going to be doing some soundtracks where the music's actually better than the film. I didn't really rate Tron Legacy. It was, yeah, a, good, it was a good enough film. It's, yeah, it's entertaining, but I, I can quite happily go to my grave never seeing that film again. But I did want to listen to the soundtrack, and I did, and I listened it's to it. It's the one thing people comment on. In yeah. A good way. yeah. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. By the way, Kevin Flynn was Jeff Bridges. Sam Flynn was his boring son. Thank you. Thank and you. Kevin Flynn was the guy with the with the, the creepy CGI face, which yes. I hated throughout the entire horrible 3D film. Indeed. <laughs> um, so yeah, so the, the track I've chosen is The Game Has Changed. No particular reason other than I just want to get a thing in. And this felt like a good track to pick because it's... Well, Rezzed was released as a single, apparently. It was, yes. Um, and it's been used in kind of loads of different um, trailers, gotcha. apparently. So let's give them something different. Yeah, exactly. Let's do, let's do something different. I've, I've gone with The Game Has Changed because, now again, like Coraline, the soundtrack is in the wrong order. Um, oh. it, start, it starts off in the right order. It starts off with you know pro, uh, Overture, then The Grid, then Son of Flynn, then Recognizer, then Armoury, and then I think it gets mixed up towards the end. Which makes no sense. If you if you if you've got the first five tracks in order, then why mix it up? But um, so I can't tell you what happens at this point in the film, and I've no intention of going to watch the film and tell and, and working it out. But just by its nature, you know, just by its title, the game has changed. If you listen to it, it's very it's very much got that kind of that Michael Bay. This shit just got real. <laughs> feel to you it. can't say you can't swear. Okay. But I'll bleep you there. Thank you. You can picture kind of the, the typical swirling camera as they realise that something has changed. I don't know what has changed. I can't remember. But listen to this when your life changes, because I think everyone should have a soundtrack in their life. Have this ready. Have a track, this track on standby if a crucial decision is being made in your life. Oh, I'll just say that uh, looking at the Coraline soundtrack, it's in exactly the right order, apart from the fact that end credits is number one, when it should be number 32. That makes no sense. That's how much rearranging I'm going to have to do, Re- just renumbering every single one of these. <laughs> anyway, Tron Legacy. Tron Legacy.
Okay, the next one's mine, and it's The Dark Crystal, a film from 1982, and the score is by Trevor Jones, who also went on to do Labyrinth, one of my absolute favourite films uh, from, from the 80s. Now, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth are very much a pair, but I never really watched The Dark Crystal, and when I did, I was a little bit creeped out by it as a kid. I loved Labyrinth. But I'm going to review Labyrinth, definitely. I'm not so sure about The Dark Crystal. This is one of those ones where I'm wondering if you guys might be up in arms and say, you have got to review The Dark Crystal. There's but, a lot of people who love this film. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, whenever I confess that I've never seen it, people get upset. Yeah. This is from when fantasy was difficult to do on screen. This is where, uh, where they had to sort of cut corners, and it was just after Star Wars, so they were trying to, you know, in the 80s there was a lot of experimentation with fantasy when they are trying to work out what to do. It took them 20 years to get to Lord of the Rings, and some of them were terrible, and some of them were great. Dark Crystal is a Muppet film, but a serious one. Okay, and I'm intrigued. <laughs> have you not seen it? I've not, no. Oh, man. Have you seen Labyrinth? Yes, of course. Okay, right. It's like that, but not fun. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, it is fun, but it's, it's supposed to be serious. It's yeah. got kind of Zelda feeling to it as well, because it stars Jin, who's this fairy boy who starts out playing this little pan pipes at the beginning. And <laughs> he's a creepy mannequin puppet, and you can see the little sort of, you know, the joints in him. And when he sort of walks around, and everything's very earnest, and it's kind of fraggle rock. But at the same time, it's, it's got this sense of... I think this might be one that we have to talk about a little bit later, because I think we're probably going to end up reviewing this one at some point. But yeah, this, this, this one's a test for you folks out there. Let's see how many Dark Crystal fans there are. This piece of music is very sort of 80s. It's got that kind of... It, it's got the, the arrangement and the instruments that they use and, 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 and the, the shapes that the, the sound forms in your, in your head are going to be very 80s. Now, so the young kids will, I don't know, will probably not be familiar with this kind of stuff. But um, everyone who was there at the time, you know, specifically, if you watched The Dark Crystal when you were a kid, and maybe if you haven't seen it for a long time, this is going to make you feel a bit funny. So, here we go. Trevor Jones, The Dark Crystal Overture.
nice build up at the end. Love a bit of that. Very kind of John Williams esque that ending. Yes. Yeah, there's um it specifically nearer the end it, it started to go a little bit kind of Star Warsy. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, obviously there is the pedigree there in the fact that the Jim Henson's creature shop were heavily involved, specifically with Return of the Jedi. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, I did that was that was beautiful. I, I loved like kind of there were two parts of that I took away. It was the um the main theme that keeps recurring the dun da da dun brings to mind a kind of very kind of majestic beast or monster or some sort of creature of importance. Mm-hmm. Um like a dragon or a Loch Ness monster or a giant eagle or you something. You said a giant bird. I did say a giant bird. Giant birds came to mind. Who were familiar with the Skeksis <laughs> would be like, Yep, giant birds. And, and then the other parts, like, kind of just bring to mind, like, very kind of fantasy landscapes, like, so towards the end when they first bring in the strings, it's kind of very kind of cloudy, you know, even, like, kind of hilltops above the clouds, and then, like, kind of around the middle, it sounded very kind of underwater-esque, like, sunken yeah. cities and, and coral reefs and beautiful. The bit where it goes, there's a bit later on where that theme is reprised uh, in a planetarium type thing where it's like this big sort of giant like planets with other planets revolve, revolving around it mm. and it really it's kind of the, the ballet of the spheres and so it's, it's like major things are happening so even though they're puppets they're selling you a much bigger world so yeah if you, have, if you guys out there haven't seen The Dark Crystal it can be had for pennies on Amazon pick it up and check it out I'm going to mix things up a bit with uh, The The Island, which is a 2005 film starring uh, Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson. Not the world's best film. No, um, it, it might be the world's best Michael Bay film. It might be the world's best <laughs> Michael Bay film, yes, indeed. Um, it was the, the world's best foot infection. <laughs> um, I don't know, I watched it, I kind of enjoyed it, it was okay, although uh, Ewan McGregor's American accent is... is Terrible. Why the, do they make people do different accents if I, they can't do them? I don't know. I don't know. The, the premise of the film, if you haven't seen it, and don't bother, you don't need to, is um, these people are kept on um, in a facility where they are... Are they told that the, the rest of the Earth is infected? And they're, they're, they're told the rest of the Earth is infected and so forth. They have to stay safe in this facility, but if they win the lottery, they go on to the island, and the island is the thing that, that's given to them to kind of... The, that hope that they get. And you find out... Like, like Logan's Run. I haven't seen that. Uh, Logan's Run is a film where in, in the future, once you hit the age of 30, you're considered too old to live and you are killed yes. in a giant ceremony. But they're told that it's a good thing. Yeah, kind of like that. And it's, it's, it's a bit more random as to who gets to go. And you find out later that, you know, that the island obviously is not what it seems. Ewan McGregor's character, he, during the day... McGregor, works... that's a new actor. McGregor, sorry. Ewan McGregor, his character works um, in a lab where they constantly put together these tubes which are feeding some sort of mysterious fluid out to another part of the um, facility. And he asks, and he, he's one of the few people there that do ask questions. And most people are happy with their existence and just continue. He's one of the few people that actually ask, well, what is all this about? Where do these tubes go? So the, yeah. the track I've chosen is called Where Do These Tubes Go? Um, <laughs> what is in the tubes? I can't well, remember. Uh, the tubes are actually, you know, spoiler alert, it's food for the other clones that are being grown. Mm. 
And, yeah, well, you didn't mention that they were clones. I didn't mention they were clones. They're I clones, was, folks. They're clones, folks. They are all clones of very kind of rich people out in the real world who, if they decide they need a spare kidney, or yeah, if they they're want... they're built to harvest organs. Yeah, they're built to harvest organs, or the worst one is um, there's a woman who's pregnant um, because the mother didn't want to ruin her figure. So yeah. she has a clone of herself grow the baby, and then she just takes the baby home. The, going to the island is going to surgery where you're the bit of your organ is cut out and then the rest of you just dies. Um, Interestingly enough, I saw Armageddon the other day, which um, made me think that Sunshine is a smart man's Armageddon. <laughs> and um, if you want the smart man's The Island, watch Never Let Me Go. That film is heartbreaking and incredibly good. I haven't seen that either. It's, it's, it's totally worth watching. The score to The Island was done by Steve Jablonski. Now, he's not one of the most known film composers, but he has done a, a kind of lot of work. He's, um, he's a student of Hans Zimmer. He works for Hans Zimmer's uh, company called Remote Control Productions. Hans Zimmer is obviously one of the most prolific and one of my favourite mm. um, film composers. He presided uh, over Harry Gregson Williams and Klaus Pedelt and a whole bunch of other people who are now have Hans Zimmer's style. Yes, yeah. exactly. And certainly you can hear a lot of Hans Zimmer's style in Jablonski's work, in, particularly in the island. The, the first track on the soundtrack, uh, I believe it's Renovatio, sounds quite uh, reminiscent of... Uh, um, the mournful, more mournful tracks in Gladiator. Similarly, the the big finale, sending the clones, where the clones are freed and sent out into the real world. That sounds very similar to kind of the the, the finale of Gladiator, where you know Maximus's spirit is freed and he, he's off. You can't actually say send in the clones without shouting like Frau Forbissena here. You can't. <laughs> send in the clones! <laughs> Michael Bay. This is the first film um, Michael Bay did with Steve Jablonski. He would later call on Jablonski to do. The Transformers, Transformers trilogy, yeah, and interesting. Our last kind a lot of people erroneously believe Hans Zimmer did the score for that. Again, kind of proving that Jablonski's kind of mastered Zimmer's style of music. Mm. He's a he's a cheaper version of Zimmer. He is a very, Zimmer he, is very busy and he, uh, Zimmer's very busy. a high paycheck. It's almost like Zimmer has got this company of clones that mm. he can then lend out. Oh God, uh, they're harvesting their music. They are harvesting the music. The last thing I'd add about Jablonski, and I didn't know this until I was um, researching, he's also scored a number of video games, including yep. Metal Gear Solid Two, along with fellow Zimmer clone Harry Gregson Williams, mm-hmm. Commander Conquer Three. The Sims 3 and various expansion packs, and Gears of War 2 and 3. So I've chosen them, where do these tubes go? I again, I can't quite remember what happens on screen, but when I listen to that, I love listening to this, and this is one of the tracks I listen to when I, when I, write, um, when I write fiction. Because you want to write as well as Michael Bay. No, 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 no. I, I use this with something completely different in mind. Forget Michael Bay, forget clones. He doesn't this, write his own films. He, he you know, no. it's just so someone else, a monkey with a crayon. Yeah. <laughs> um... When I when I write using this track, I kind of picture kind of it's got a very kind of stealthy feel to it. Picture when you listen, kind of a cat burglar breaking into a highly armed vault, mm. or any kind of thief breaking into something, or a spy or someone breaking, you know, infiltrating a compound, dodging guards. Have a listen. Think of it like that as you listen to. Where do these tubes go? Thank you. 
So yet another soundtrack that's way better than the film. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Much, much better. Subtlety. And the yeah. rest of the soundtrack is very good. I mean, um, it's not all along that kind of sound, but like, it, it's, nice, it's a nice kind of mix between that sort of thing and Zimmer's kind of traditional sound and then the kind of the middle ground. It's, it's very good. Okay, the next one is Danny Elfman. Now, there, what we tried to do for this one is make sure that we've, we've got 12 things. We are going to have 12 different composers and 12 different sounds and try to keep them as distinct and different from each other as possible. Now, Danny Elfman's done so much work, and so much of it all sounds the same. It all kind of sounds a little bit... Like his earlier 80s and early 90s work sounded very much like Beetlejuice, and his later stuff all seems to sound a, bit, a lot like Spider-Man. But this one is a standout piece that you wouldn't know was Danny Elfman, apart from... Uh, maybe if you listen to the flutes you'd go, ah, actually, the piano plunking and the flutes are a little bit like Goodwill Hunting. This film is A Simple Plan. It's from 1998. It's a relatively unknown film. Bill Paxton, Bridget Fonda, Billy Bob Thornton. And it's a thriller. Two brothers find a huge amount of money out in the uh, woods in a suitcase next to a crashed plane in the snow. You know something's dodgy about it. They're They're trying to work out whether to keep the money or not. They keep the money... And then it becomes a case of hiding the money and having to deal with the people who eventually do come looking for it. And then the consequences of living with that. It's a haunting film. And this opening sequence, it's evocative of the woods in America, the wild woods. It's got kind of a Native American feel to it. It's got kind of the, 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 you know, the eyes of the, the, the forest itself, the feeling that you're not alone in the forest and it's not entirely a comfortable feeling either the, the whole place is blanketed in snow for pretty much the duration of the film so there's a lot of ice in here as well it is one of Elfman's most subtle and affecting scores and he doesn't go over the top at any point in it and the, uh, the end is kind of a, a mirror and a, a, and a crescendo of this but the end of the movie he goes into themes of fire it warms up to this sort of tumbling feel, but at the same time, it's kind of the denouement at the end of a lot of tension. Interestingly enough, when I read the, uh, the graphic novel for the uh, vampire story, 30 Days of Night, I listened to this on a loop over and over again. So whenever I listen to this, I actually think of 30 Days of Night. And when 30 Days of Night came along, that score is a lot colder and there isn't that sense of, of uh, humanity and emotion in there. It's, all, it's even more barren and shark-like. There's a little a shade of a different story in, in this song for me. Okay, enough of me. This is the main title uh, for A Simple Plan by Danny Elfman.
as you can hear at the end, it got a lot warmer as uh, it became about the, the the two brothers at the very beginning when uh, you know before they actually find the money before everything goes pear shaped. Mm. Very good. I am going to cheer things up slightly with my next track. Uh, we've gone from the cold, mournful, snowy waste of a simple plan to the hot, sandy, tropical desert of The Mummy Returns. It's got an oasis in it. It does have an oasis in it. And uh, The Rock. And The Rock. And, of course... No! The best way to ruin a shot of One of the time. greatest scene destructions ever. <laughs> The Mummy Returns, 2001, sequel to obviously the uh, the acclaim to The Mummy, and I, I maintain this was a good sequel. I, it was one of those sequels that is put together just to give you more adventures with the same characters. It doesn't need to do anything drastic, it doesn't need to change anything, it's just, look, come along for another adventure. The, the, mum, the first Mummy felt very much like a kind a mix, I know they were trying to the remake of the old Universal Pictures horror film. Mm. To me particularly with the action scenes with um, Rick O'Connell, played by Brendan Fraser, it felt very much like a modern-day Indiana Jones, in that you're searching for a treasure, and you're crossing the desert, and there's globe-trotting and so forth, and then the mummy returns... Define modern-day. Okay, I mean modern-day modern, right, modern day is in... Okay, a 90s Indiana Jones. It was, direct, it was released in 97, which is, what, 15 years ago now? Okay, at the time. And it's set before Indiana Jones. Okay. It just felt like an indie clone. But that wasn't a bad thing. No, it okay. Many of the flavours. Okay, well, okay, a 90s take on the Indiana Jones That's formula. So hard. That's what it's I mean, sorry. Uh, Uncharted is a, a noughties take. Yes, exactly, yeah. Okay, apologies for slight That's confusion the there. The Mummy Returns obviously kind of followed the f- same formula. I, I, I thought, yeah, it's an enjo- enjoyable enough film. It's not going to win any awards, obviously. It's an enjoyable enough film. Made more, even more so by the score. Now, the score is done by Alan Silvestri, who, uh, obviously, a you know, very kind of famous composer, best known for his collaborations with Robert Zemeckis, including things like Romancing the Stone, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and, of course, the Back to the Future trilogy. Oh, but I think we, just, we said that if... John Williams is the god of uh, film scores, then surely uh, Alan Silvestri is the Einstein. He is. I mean, he's, most re- he's still going now. Like, I mean, his most recent work includes um, Captain America and the Avengers. Which was and incredible. Beowulf. And Beowulf. Which I adore. Um, now, I can't remember if it was for this film or, an- or the Back to the Future films, but one of them, there's a documentary on a DVD where they mentioned bringing in Alan Silvestri, and the word, almost word for word, what they say is like, they brought him in because they wanted him to use the music to make what's happening on screen feel even bigger than it is. Yeah. And he really does that. He, even with something as epic as the Avengers, he does. And in this case, in the case of The Mummy Returns, I think he really, really delivers that in spades. The track I've chosen is Sandcastles. If you haven't seen the film, um, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz's uh, son is kidnapped by Imhotep, played by Arnold Vosloo, because he has on him the bracelet of Anubis, which leads the way, way to the oasis of Amsher, where Imhotep can defeat the Scorpion King, take over the armies of Anubis, and then conquer the world. Spoken like a true magi. <laughs> As they are travelling, uh, you know, the, the, the bracelet shows a vision of a temple in Egypt, and only when you get to that temple will the bracelet show you the next step on the journey. Mm. Knowing that his parent will no doubt be ch- you know, coming after him, 
the young boy starts making sandcastles of the next temple that he's seen. Oh, neat. Yeah, I remember that. And, you know, so that when they arrive, and they, he knows they're going to be slightly too late, when they arrive, they find a sandcastle, and they recognise the temple, and they go there to try and head off Imhotep and try and recover their son. This is a kind of a montage piece, um, and it's a travel montage, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's very much got that kind of that hot, exotic desert feel, mm. um, almost this flighty kind of quality, which is great because they're in a dirigible, Dir- which, yep. is, yeah. which is basically an, a, you know, a massive balloon carrying an, a ship. And, and it's, just, it's, it's just this fantastic kind of travel piece that you get in these Indiana Jones-style um, you know, adventure films, these globe-trotting adventure films. It's very much the equivalent of the red line travelling over the map kind mm. of scenes from the Indiana Jones films. It's, it's very good. It's fantastic kind of um, travelling music on a hot day. Enjoy. A couple of corrections on my part. The Mummy was released in 99, not 97, and the original score was by... Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith, once again. Um, So, yeah, this is Alan Silvestri's take on The Mummy Returns, and once you've seen the third Mummy film, uh, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, you will realise and appreciate the subtle brilliance of The Mummy Returns, because the other one is like pulling teeth. It's, it's, it's wrong. It's, it's How do you have Jet Li and Michelle Yeoh? Have yeah. them fight and still suck. The Mummy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor is terrible. In the, like, it, it's still them trying to find an oasis, in this case um, Shangri-La. It's still them trying to defeat an army, in this case the Terracotta army of whoever. Shan. It's just rubbish. But this isn't. <laughs>
actually, I saw a film today which had uh, Alan Silvestri's score, uh, directed by Robert Zemeckis, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Indeed, and I believe I mentioned that before we played. That <laughs> film is incredible. It is. And it really I've, is. I just watching it again today, I noticed so many bits, and it was made for Blu-ray to be able to pause and go, that and mm. that and that, and those are the three little pigs, and that's Peter Pig from the great wise little hen, yeah. and just little bits and bobs and so many, like, like at one point, Roger's standing in front of, hang on, you know what, I'm not going to talk about it, because we are reviewing that film, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, now that, that had a very Back to the Future, specifically Back to the Future 2 style score. Yes. Okay, so this next one is mine, and it's a 2006 film, and it's very relevant to the past few weeks' worth of uh, shows that I've been doing. It's Lady in the Water, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Now, this is a perfect example of a terrible film with a wonderful soundtrack. It's James Newton Howard, and not only is it fantastic, it's a fantastic soundtrack that should have been with a different film. They used this prologue music, and oh no, actually they used the uh, later music from the great Eatlon, um, which is like the big eagle thing at the end of the film's rubbish film, for the trailer for The Golden Compass. They should, uh, this score works so well, the whole CD, for reading through his Dark Materials books. James, have you ever had the pleasure? I have had the pleasure, and I, ne- I intend to go back and read, the, read, read them again, because I've forgotten most of it, sadly. I heartily recommend you get hold of this entire soundtrack and listen to it on a loop while reading through. It's got kind of a clockworky, uh, you know, the, the gears of the alethiometer turning through it the whole way through, and that kind of soaring feel at the end worked so well in the trailer, and then the film failed to deliver on most of that and, and yeah there's, there's a weird kind of link between M. Night Shyamalan's Last Airbender which was such a dreadful disappointment to Avatar fans as well so there you go um, so anyway this is the prologue and uh, it's, it's as far as I'm concerned it's one of James Newton Howard's finest pieces of work and he should not be blamed for the rubbish film itself
wonderful, subtle, gentle, but it's got this kind of momentum to it, like the wheels of fate are turning. It's, it's got this kind of untapped power to it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that if, if you really tap, like if you really kind of un, you know, unlocked it, it, it would just explode and kind of be really a much grander piece. Mm. But it's contained. Oh, dude, and, yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. Okay, I will... I will make sure you get hold of this entire soundtrack. I somewhere. will, yes, because that would okay. be lovely. Right. Um, so, yeah, you, yours is the next one. Indeed. And I'm going to cheer things up slightly again. Although that, that was quite, you know, like, that starts off quite mournful, becomes quite a positive piece. Um, this is from Ocean's Eleven, the 2001 remake with George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts, etc., as opposed to the Rat Pack original. The track I've chosen is $160 million Chinese Man. Uh, this is the tune played as you realise how they've pulled off yeah. the the heist. And I'm not going to say anything like cause the, the joy of Ocean's Eleven is the twist yeah. of the how they the twist how they've pulled off this this incredible heist. They've robbed three casinos against this these incredible amounts of technology and seemingly lots of obstacles and and things going not the way for the the right crew. And you you really are kind of concerned for them. And when you realise that everything has been part of the plan, there's this kind of, uh, there's a confidence to this tune. There's a swagger to it and a kind of, as I said in like the, my emails planning this with um, Alex, it's kind of, it's stick it to the man sort of track. It's kind of, uh, in your face, I have done this. This is for those little moments where you've kind of outsmarted your boss or proved um, someone wrong or outshone that guy that really irritates you in the office. Um the thing I love about the soundtrack as well is it, it include the actual album includes snippets of um, dialogue from the film, which is something that not many soundtracks do. Mm. But it works so well in this. I mean, you'll hear a little soundtrack, and, and you'll hear a little snippet between um, George Clooney and, and Matt Damon, and it really does kind of sum up the, the, the sheer accomplishment of that of the heist and what they've actually achieved in knocking over this casino. Um, it's done by David Holmes, who's a, a Northern Irish composer. I've not heard many of his other soundtracks. He's not done a great deal. Certainly not Have you heard to... uh, Out of Sight? No, I haven't. No. Out of Sight is brilliant. That's, it's, it's um, again, Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney. Yeah. I thoroughly recommend that. Um, that may actually get a Gonzo review at some point. Okay, I'll give that a look. Um, but yeah, I like to say, like, just... This is a fantastic, and it's a really good kind of feel-good Friday drive home sort of track. In mm. it has a it has a quite a bit of um, a little less conversation, a little more action, which was in the film, and then beca- got that remix. It out. shares a kind of the baseline with it, I think. Yeah, um, it and it's it's just brilliant. Ninety-five pound Chinese man with one hundred and sixty million dollars behind this door. Let's get him out.
911 emergency response. an abrupt ending because obviously like the beauty of this album is that all the tracks lead into one yeah um, so it's just kind of a seamless non-stop album to listen to yeah but it's just not possible to listen to that and feel depressed it's got a very 70s kind of funk vibe to it does it, it does yeah. um, I've actually got the um, uh, the David Holmes' album "Let's Get Killed" and uh, it's it's got a lot of. It feels like he's recorded it in the street. It's got that kind of raw feeling to it. Mm. Okay, so this next one, I've just realised I've broken a rule here. I've repeated a recording artist. I hadn't realised that this Trevor Jones here is exactly the same as that Trevor Jones back what done the Dark Crystal. I'm going to allow it because uh, it also involves Randy Edelman uh, who did uh, uh, this is a collaborative um, soundtrack. It's in the same way as uh, Zimmer and James Newton Howard did the first two uh, Dark Knight films. Interestingly because two composers worked on these scores they were ineligible for Oscar nominations despite the fact that screenplays effects etc have no such restriction. This is one of the many ridiculous quirks of the corrupt and complacent Academy. Also specifically because Trevor Jones has done so few films that people can, can correctly identify that I think it's time to showcase Trevor Jones. So I'm going to allow this. It's Last of the Mohicans. It's from 1992. It's a film by Michael Mann. And the track is called Promontory. Now the film itself, back in 1992 I was 12 and I was a big fan of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So when I finally saw it, it was very, very serious. And I was kind of like, I was expecting a big kind of swashbuckling adventure. You know, it's got some romance in it, but it, I thought it was going to be about action. thought there'd be some humour in there. There is almost no humour in this film whatsoever. It's Michael Mann striving to be as realistic as possible in recreating the colonial period. Why should you guys be interested in the colonial period? Well, there's a little game coming out in the next few months called... Assassin's Creed 3. Yes. 
and you play a, uh, a Native um, American, well, at least part Native American character. From what I've seen of it, it's got a very similar flavor. If you are near a computer, see if you can find a trailer for Assassin's Creed 3. And James, if you want to do that uh, yourself, just while we're doing this here. I was actually just Googling as you said yeah. that. And, uh, and just listen to this. It's, 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 it's a long track. I, I'm going to ask you guys to, uh, to sit and listen to this one for nearly eight minutes, actually. If you've never heard this before, you may find yourself alarmingly uplifted. And if you have heard it before, you'll be swept back away to where you were before. It is one of the most epic... It is an incredibly arresting piece of music. Actually, mm-hmm. another interesting one is, if you watch the original trailer for Assassin's Creed, the, the first Assassin's Creed, with the Pirates of the Caribbean track, He's a Pirate. Nice. It's, and I'll tell you what, someone's actually done that on YouTube, so maybe we'll stick that on the forum. It's brilliant. It, it fits so perfectly. The other, the other good one I like is um, GoldenEye Tank Chase redubbed. Um, and oh so yeah, you actually did show me that I one. I did yeah. show you like the one with the the bon- it's so spot on. Don't feel like you have to stick specifically to this thing because obviously it's it's evocative and it will it will take you to different places. And if you're stuck looking at a screen, yeah, yeah. a bit uh, odd. So uh, now before I start this one, folks, there are two different versions of Promontory out there because there were two different soundtracks to Last of the Mohicans. There's the original 1992 version, and then there was a 2000 version which was re-recorded out. Interestingly enough, I was really in two minds about which version to show for you guys tonight because there's two components to the song and each version has the strongest of those components and if you got them to meet in the middle, you'd have a perfect version. But I chose the original 92 one because this is closest to the film and it's got more of a throbbing kind of energy to it and you can hear more of the different instruments. Uh, at play now the rearranged version is shorter I honestly recommend you guys listen to both and decide for yourselves which which you prefer director Michael Mann initially asked Trevor Jones to provide an electronic score for the film but late in the game possibly after Mike watched Manhunter again and realised that synth was liable to date his movie pretty badly it was decided an orchestral score would be more appropriate for this historic epic Jones hurried to refashion the score for orchestra in the limited time left while the constant recutting of the film meant music cues sometimes had to be rewritten several times to keep up with the new timings as we mentioned before regarding problems James Horner faced with the Aliens score. Finally, with the release date looming, composer Randy Edelman was called in to score some minor scenes, which Jones didn't have time to do. Jones and Edelman received co-credit on the film, which, as I said before, made it ineligible for Oscar consideration. And when you listen to it, you'll realise what a goddamn crime that is. The main theme of this movie is taken from the tune The Gale by Scottish singer-songwriter Dougie MacLean. So here we have the original 1992 Trevor Jones' version of Promontory. As you're listening to this, picture vast, uncharted landscapes, rolling hills, soaring clifftops, tumbling rivers, deep forests teeming with animals and intrepid adventurers moving through the wilderness, attuned with nature, hunting elk under an enormous and clear sky.
My last one is Mission Impossible 2, um, the track Bear Island. Most people, when they think of the music of Mission Impossible 2, they automatically think of the Limp Biscuit sound uh, song, um, Take a Look Around, which, to be fair, I like the kind of the the moody style on Lalo Schifrin's, um, you know, the basic don't-don't-da-da-don't-don't, uh, which obviously is the uh, Mission Impossible theme. Mm. I like Limp Biscuit's take on the and on the on the guitar. Very nice. The rest of the song sucked. The rest of the score, the actual soundtrack to the film, is done by Hans Zimmer, uh, who we may have mentioned once or twice. What I like about this is it's very unlike his usual scores. As we said with um, Steve Jablonski and, and The Island, he's got a very similar kind of sound to him. Um, you know, Gladiator is very similar. Gladiator is a prime example of how a, a typical Hans Zimmer soundtrack sounds like. Yeah. Um, certainly, like my my dad was a my dad was actually uh, was a little drunk the other day. Was watching Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, sorry, was watching Gladiator and said, "This is the Pirates of the Caribbean theme." It's exactly the same. Yeah, my my daughter, all of three years old, was yeah. listening to the uh, battle uh, music at the beginning of Gladiator. Yeah. The, no, actually, and she went, that's Jack Sparrow. Yeah. I went, yeah, same guy. They're very, very, very similar. But if not... your drunk dad and my three-year-old kid think that Hans Zimmer's being lazy... <laughs> They're very similar, but then uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, wasn't even done by Hans Zimmer. It was no, it was like, Klaus Bedell. Yeah. Klaus Bedell. Um, interestingly, who was one of the performers on Mission Impossible 2. Mm. Um, I don't know which instrument he's performing, but he is one of the uh, performers. Also kind of carrying across Super. like um, the some of the tracks, particularly Injection, which is an incredible piece. And I, I was really torn between choosing Bear Island or Injection. Is Injection the one which has Lisa Gerrard in the background? It is. I was about to say, yeah, it has Lisa Gerrard, who obviously was known for um, doing the vocals for Gladiator as well. Yeah. So Bear Island I picked because it's very unlike um, Hans Zimmer's sort of scores. It's very orchestral and choral to begin with, and later becomes very kind of rock bandy um, mm. and very kind of contemporary. I'd say the first part's actually very Hans Zimmer. I, yeah, just just from my perspective. But when it gets to the rock, it's like not it's, at all. This, this is not at all what you expect from Hans Zimmer. Yeah. But the build up to it, this, I I love a good yeah. build up. I love a good crescendo, particularly to a point where the music explodes, and that is what this this track does. Um, just enjoy. That, what do you think of the film itself, by the way? I like the film. I know that people don't. I know that it's not really Miss Mossville film. I know it's a John Woo action film, but I can't help but enjoy it.
Okay. That was uh, that was quite astonishing, James. Yeah, folks, stick around for the very, very end, because uh, James said some interesting things during that track, <laughs> which I'm going to convey to you at a later time. I, didn't, I wanted you guys to, to absorb the full totality of the music before you, uh, you heard James's take on it. But, uh, okay. Right, before we go, I'd like to thank my guest, James Batchelor. Please, plug your show, plug your magazine, whatever else you'd like to plug. You can find uh, my show, Game Burst. We're a twice-weekly gaming podcast. You can find us at gameburst.co.uk. We have a new show every Sunday, and then every Thursday, something a little different. So it's either a roundtable, a top five, uh, a replay where we go back and play a game from at least two years ago. Uh, We have a monthly quiz. Um, So, yeah, tune into that, gameburst.co.uk. Um, and I work at MCV. It's the UK's video game trade magazine. Uh, you can find us at mcvuk.com. So we're going to play out with my final track. Uh, but after that, that will be all from us this week. Uh, remember to look in the Gonzo Planet forums under the Digital Gonzo Podcast section for listings of these tracks. And you can, of course, find them all on Amazon and iTunes. Right, this last piece of music I'm going to leave you in is from Heat. Now, this was one of the ones I was agonizing over because I was thinking, now, do I, do I want to say that I'm not going to review this for Gonzo? Again, I think I, I will at some point eventually do this film. But this piece of music is so wonderful that I, I kind of needed to do it on the, the, the first episode of The Sounds of Gonzo. It is God Moving Over the Face of the Waters. is by Moby. It takes place at the climax of the film. Now, I'm barely going to even describe Heat to you folks out there. If you haven't seen Heat, it is a crime thriller that it was hugely influential on in The Dark Knight, for, for one thing. And uh, it's Al Pacino and, and Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer at their best, at their absolute best. Uh, it's about a cop and a thief, both of whom are extremely dedicated men, both of whom are throwing themselves into this, their particular field and going up against one another, but barely meeting. They meet once in a coffee shop in the middle of the film and then at the end for the climax. Uh, but at the same time, there's these two incredibly intense personalities leading their two very dedicated forces, completely at odds with each other in terms of what they need and what they want, and they're going to clash. If you haven't heard this track before, it starts off kind of uh, in the same way as uh, Last of the Mohicans, like, you know, just the same thing over and over again. You kind of have to stick with it. But once it gets hold of you and once it gets that kind of um, uh, momentum to it, it sends you flying. It knocks you for six emotionally. Interestingly enough, if you actually buy the soundtrack of this, the soundtrack does not contain the version that was in the film. You should really shop around and check out and make sure that you get the version that is playing now, because this was the one that was in the film. There's a definite emotional peak and a crescendo, which for some reason the one on the soundtrack never reaches. The version to avoid is seven minutes long. This alternate film version is five minutes and 44 seconds. So this is Moby, God moving over the face of the waters, and it takes place at the end, at the airport, on the tarmac, where there has been a climactic shootout between the two leads. Have you seen it, by the way, James? I have. Love that film. We will be back in a week's time with a retrospective discussion on the original Xbox launch title of Halo. Once again, thank you to James Batchelor. Thank you. And stay tuned after this one for James's read-through of a spy novel scene treatment set to the music of Mission Impossible 2. I've been Alex Shaw, and you're listening to The Sound of Gonzo.
so later on, like, I'll, I'll tell you when to kind of kick off. Like, picture of kind of the Pease Gloria, which is the, the ski resort from Unamasty Super Service. Your service, yep. Right, okay, oh. here. It's like picture the trailer Pe- for the Bond game coming out. It is. Pease Gloria, in the middle of the mountains, a helicopter during this point is... Someone in the helicopter is firing um, rocket launchers at the top of a mountain above Peace Gloria. Everything goes deathly silent for a moment before you start seeing some of the snow starting to slip. Kind of like Mulan um, in the, the Tung Shao Pass. Yep. An avalanche begins. Our hero, a generic spy person, is locked in a cupboard or in a room. Fridge. In, um, Peace Gloria. In a, no, in a, in a cupboard. He's bashing the door with his shoulder, bursts through tries to find a way out, look, runs to the back of the resort, looks up the mountain, sees the, uh, the avalanche Shit! Runs and tries to find an escape. He knows he needs to get down the mountain path, so he needs supplies. He starts bashing against another door, and again, trying to get in and try to get in. It just says supplies on the side. The helicopter is watching. The avalanche approaches. There's fuel tanks in the back because it's a film. It has to explode. Of course! And out comes the guy on a snowboard. <laughs> of course he had a snowboard, Abby. He had a snowboard. The helicopter starts chasing him down the mountain. Is the helicopter on a snowboard too? No, certainly <laughs> no. Machine gun fire. You know those, like, those bullet cannons that just follow something as it's going? Through the snow. Exactly. Yeah. They can't fire for shit, but they can certainly make it look good. not the point. Maybe the snowboard throws in a kind of a loop-de-loop kind of hairish. Does he pull off his crash helmet while he's doing it and sort of give it like a Prince Charming sort of wave of the hair back and forth long, glossy, blonde hair? He turns to the camera and we see it is Jake's bachelor. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> love, out of love to be able to do that. Secret agent power fantasy man. That was really good. Thank you, man. No worries. Thank you for indulging me there. It's like, oh, like, not at all. It was great. I've got that kind of that scene in my head, and like, like I said, like, it's just it's really powerful. And I've no one I could actually share that with. I, I wouldn't put it past me to <laughs> include that in the podcast in some way. <laughs> <laughs> it's busted. Now you've got a henchman on skis jumping out of the helicopter and chasing him on skis. Just FYI. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know, to be fair, I just got as far as the explosion and a little bit of the chase, and that was as far as I got. At the bottom, there's a hot woman in a shiny car. <laughs> and he has to get in the shiny car before the mountain falls on them. Yeah. There's a speedboat. There's no speedboat. There's no speedboat. But there is a uh, seemingly bottomless cliff coming up. Alright, cool, cool. Okay, now the cliff is approaching. You can see it coming closer. What's he gonna do? Is this, but now he's off the cliff. Okay, he's flying. Oh, he's falling, falling down. Oh my god, Jason Bachelor's going to die. But then out comes the parachute. <laughs> not Union Jack, not Union Jack. Huh? Just a parachute. Just America. Just America. And the Michael Bay remake of the opening of uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, pretty much. Brilliant. Um, I didn't say it was original, but it gives me pleasure. It, uh, no, it's, it's awesome. Like I said, that's getting into the... Uh, <laughs> And if you need, you know, if you, if you need me back again, more than happy to do this. Thank you, mate. Awesome. Uh, yeah. There were many, many tracks that I wanted to put in myself. But Likewise. I'm sure many of them. Oh, also, when you when you said at the start, like um, any kind of, you know, it might include like TV and video games. Like obviously there's yeah. video game soundtracks, but there's a couple. Like, I've got like um, I've got 24 of the TV soundtracks in the first couple of series. Yeah. And there's a really couple of nice kind of pieces on that. 
And we could probably maybe even get like stage show music in there. Yeah. We never get to talk about Broadway musicals on Gonzo. Mm. Oh man. <laughs> I'll just with the opera now. Okay, right, that'll do. <laughs> I will see you later, mate. Take care, mate. Have a good one. Good night. Bye.